rest of you can turn. Uh, if, you, if you have a Bible with you, you can flip. Oh, we're going this way. We're going out today, not, not up here. Yep. He'll get used to it eventually that we're not doing this up here anymore. <laughs> the rest of you can turn in your Bibles to the book of Revelation. We started the book of Revelation last week. If you were not here uh, last week or uh, if you miss any of these, all of our sermons are available on our podcast or on our website. Um, if you missed last week's sermon, it would be good to go back and listen to that, uh, not because it was a particularly great sermon, but because it was the intro overview uh, of how we're looking at this book, how to understand this book, which is uh, super confusing for a lot of folks. And so uh, I will reference back to the things that we talked about last week uh, frequently throughout this whole sermon series, but if you want that big overview of that stuff, uh, last week's sermon is where you're going to get all that information that would be helpful as we walk through some of these things. Well, as many of you know, uh, Whitney and I uh, both studied architecture at Ball State. Uh, and in architecture, you learn uh, some level of design and some level of structure so that you can actually design things that stand up, right? And in practice, you're going to lean heavily on structural engineers who are not always friends with architects because architects design things that Structural engineers are like, that doesn't make any sense. Why would you do that? But any glorious piece of architecture in the world has this balance between design or sort of a theoretical knowledge of things and structure or a functional knowledge of things. If you have only theoretical knowledge, you end up explaining your designs as we often would in joking in our design studios with Skyhook. How does that thing, how does that big cantilever hold up? Skyhook. You just hook it on the sky. That's how it holds up, right? Like, it, you know, it doesn't work. That's the point. It doesn't work if you only have that theoretical knowledge. But if you only have functional knowledge, uh, you end up with a lot of really boring things, right? Because the simplest way to create a structure is often fairly boring. So you kind of need this beauty. Uh, to create beauty in space, you need this theoretical knowledge and functional knowledge put together. But at the end of the day, theoretical knowledge will not hold up to gravity. Gravity doesn't care all that much about beauty or design. It cares far more about functional knowledge. Will it hold up? That's what gravity really cares about. Well, in a similar way, the book of Revelation wants to push up against, strengthen, and test our functional view of God. A functional view of God. Now, there is our theoretical view of God, which is massively important. And what many of us actually focus on is our theoretical view of God. Do we have the right theology? Do we agree with the right statement of faith? Can we describe Jesus accurately? All of this is very, very important. Having right theology and being able to affirm right theology is very important. But if it's merely theoretical and functionally we live our lives with a different version of Jesus than we theoretically say we believe, it's not all that helpful. Because the gravity of life doesn't really care much about our theoretical view of Jesus. It cares about our functional view of Jesus. What do you actually carry around with? What do you actually think Jesus is like in your day-to-day, and does it affect every part of your day? Suffering, tribulation, resistance, opposition, Satan, 
my flesh and the world, all of these things, they push up against not your theoretical statement of faith view of Jesus, but your functional view of Jesus. What are you actually clinging to in your life? Again, having a correct statement of faith is super important. The question is, do we actually believe that? Do we functionally believe what our theoretical vision of Jesus is? Do those two things match? Or are they not? Because the reality is your view of Jesus will determine how you live in the world. I would wager to say, actually, it's maybe one of the most important things about you. What do you think Jesus is like? Again, not just what you think he is like in an orthodox statement of faith that you've signed on to, but functionally, actually, what do you think he's like day to day in a way that affects your life? We often believe a certain way about Jesus, but actually live like we don't believe that at all. Functionally, we believe something entirely different. Last week, I said one of the most important features of apocalyptic literature, which is what the book of Revelation is, is the emphasis on who the revelation is received from. Who, the, who is speaking? Who's revealing? Who is this thing about? And this initial vision that we're going to look at this morning that John sees gives us that introduction, who this whole thing is about. It's about Jesus, the Son of Man. And so this morning, we're going to see what actually is your view of Jesus functionally, and how do we actually square that with who Jesus really is? Because there's a lot of different views of Jesus out there, and some of them get at certain aspects of who he is, but not really the fullness. Kind of like an amusement park caricature drawing. You know those caricature drawings at amusement parks where the artist emphasizes one feature of your face and exploits it and makes it the only feature of your face, right? Some of our views of Jesus are like that. We pick one aspect of who Jesus is and we make it the whole of who he is. Some view Jesus... Some have a view of Jesus that's the sentimental Jesus. He's all friend, all love, all sentimental, all nice. He's very tame. He's nice. He's the person you take home to see your family. He's nice. He's sentimental. Others have the opposite view, the warrior Jesus, which might be uh, uh, like this. Kat gave me this on the way in. Somebody put this on her car. Uh, You can't see this. You can see it later if you want. Who is this man? It's like lightning coming out of his eyes. It's a little bit similar. I did not put it there. Uh, But it's a little bit similar to some of the vision that we're going to see. But some people see this as the only Jesus, is warrior Jesus. He's all wrath. He's always flipping tables. You know, Jesus flipped tables once. But these folks, it's like Jesus is flipping tables always. He's always angry. He's always judging. He's the warrior Jesus. Some people see the activist Jesus. He's all political. Now, usually only in the way that I want him to be political, not in the way he actually might be, right? He's activist Jesus. There's activist Jesus on both sides of the political spectrum. Uh, He's all results-oriented, all external and others-focused, nothing about how you live your life personally or anything about personal holiness. Or there's teacher Jesus. It's all about teaching, all about moral living, all about guidance, but there's no confrontation. There's no divine Jesus. 
there's no miraculous Jesus. Or there's benefactor Jesus. He's all into me and my dreams and making them happen. He funds my dreams. He makes my life happen. He's my benefactor. Now, aspects of these views of Jesus are not all wrong. And most of us wouldn't sign on to a statement of faith for any of these individual ones. However, functionally, do you live like Jesus is one of these? Does your functional knowledge of Jesus match your theoretical knowledge of Jesus? There's really one other view of Jesus out there. I mean, I'm sure there's lots more, but one other one is the imaginary Jesus, which means that he didn't really exist at all, or if he did, he died and doesn't matter for my day today. This actually might be the functional view of Jesus that most of us hold most days. As if he doesn't really matter at all to my daily life. As if he only matters in the theoretical view, the statement of faith that I sign on to, but doesn't actually affect every moment of my life. If we're going to preserve, or sorry, per- persevere, if we're going to persevere and endure faithfully, which as we talked about last week is the point of the book of Revelation, to get you to persevere and endure faithfully, we need to see the whole Jesus. We need what John sees, the glorious one, a vision of King Jesus, the Son of Man. Now, there's going to be lots, of, lots and lots of practical things for us to learn throughout this series in Revelation. Uh, all of the imagery and vision and all of these things actually deals with a lot of very practical realities of our lives. And so we're going to get to lots of very practical things. But today, here, what we need is to combine the theoretical with the functional And start with the most important thing, which is a vision of Jesus. Because without it, we will have nothing. And with it, well, with it, God's going to make all things new. With the right view of Jesus, God will do glorious things to transform us and build his kingdom. With it, God will transform us to behold Jesus as he is and to become like him. What we need this morning is to know the presence of the glorious God of the universe through the gospel of grace. So we're going to start in the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verse 9. I think, I'm going to try. Nope. Oh, wait. Turn it on. That helps. Look at that. Got it. All right. Well, jumped ahead. All right, I, John, am your brother and your partner in suffering and in God's kingdom, and in the patient endurance to which Jesus calls us. I was exiled to the island of Patmos for preaching the word of God and for my testimony about Jesus. It was the Lord's day, and I was worshiping in the Spirit. Now, that phrase, worshiping in the Spirit, is standard for he's about to see some prophetic visions. He's about to, this is the way in which John is communicating, I am about to see some prophetic visions, apocalyptic visions in the spirit for you. Suddenly I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet blast. It said, write in a book everything you see and send it to the seven churches in the cities of Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. When I turned to see who was speaking to me, I saw seven gold lampstands. And standing in the middle of the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man. 
He was wearing a long robe with a gold sash across his chest. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like flames of fire. His feet were like polished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice thundered like the mighty ocean waves. He held seven stars in his right hand, and a sharp two-edged sword came from his mouth, and his face was like the sun in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as if I were dead. But he laid his right hand on me and said, Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, but look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and the grave. Write down what you have seen, both the things that are now happening and the things that will happen. This is the meaning of the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven gold lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. All right. Now, if you remember, we said that seven is a really important number in the book of Revelation. It means fullness. It means perfection. It means all. And so, when John sees this Son of Man standing in the midst of the seven lampstands, which represent the seven churches, what he's saying is he's standing in the midst of the church universal. So this is a vision that John is seeing that is for you today as much as it is for those in Ephesus and Philadelphia and Laodicea in the first century. This is a message to us. Jesus, the Son of Man, is standing in the midst of these lampstands. Now, the lampstand should trigger some things for us about thinking when we were in the book of Exodus, right? In the tabernacle, there was a lampstand in the Uh, in the tabernacle, and it was meant to be the presence of God with the people. This lampstand was always to be burning. This lamp was always to be lit so that God was always present with his people. And so if you have seven lampstands representing these seven churches, what it is is that God is going to be present with his church, and he's going to speak to his church. Now, this vision, immediately what John sees is the Son of Man, someone like the Son of Man. Now that should prompt us to, re- to remember other things. You see, remember last week I said we need to read the book of Revelation through a lens of the Old Testament. Because this book refers or it alludes to the Old Testament. There's no direct quotes in this book of the Old Testament. But it has more allusions to the Old Testament than all the rest of the New Testament combined. It is steeped in the Old Testament. So when John says, I saw one like the Son of Man, we should think, where does this show up somewhere else? Well, certainly Jesus takes this title, we'll get to that in a little bit, as the the favorite title that he uses himself. When he is describing who he is, he uses the title Son of Man. But that phrase comes from the book of Daniel. And this vision mixes two separate visions in the book of Daniel, and puts the two of them together. These two visions are in Daniel 7 and Daniel 10. We'll we'll talk about those in a moment. But when he says, son of man, we are to be alerted, particularly because of the language that is used of these things, to look to Daniel and find out what these things are. Now, Daniel is in exile in Babylon. And Daniel is given uh, wisdom to see and secret knowledge of these visions both visions that he sees and the ability to interpret King Nebuchadnezzar's dreams, and then other kings' dreams as well. And he is able to give a picture of 
the, the, uh, what, what is going to happen to these kingdoms. And often what these visions end up realizing or showing is that the kingdoms of the world are ultimately going to be con- destroyed by God's kingdom. It's kind of the whole point of what Daniel is going to uh, tell the kings. And actually, a lot of Daniel is going to show up when we get to other places where these crazy, wild things happen, like these beasts coming out of the sea and out of the land and all this stuff. All of this is coming from Daniel. So we're going to get our interpretation of what those things are from Daniel. But what's important for us to remember is Daniel's in exile in Babylon. When John begins to refer to Daniel, he is signaling to you, or well, to the churches that he's writing to, and then to you, you're in exile in Babylon. You're in exile in Babylon. We are not home. We are not like Old Testament Israel in the promised land. That's never the situation for the New Testament church. We are always in exile in a foreign land. It's not our home country. Our home is the kingdom of God, the coming kingdom of God. And so we are in exile in Babylon, and this is what we need most to persevere in exile in Babylon is to see Jesus rightly. This vision showcases the three offices that Jesus holds in his work uh, for us. That of prophet, priest, and king. First of prophet, well, Jesus is speaking. Jesus speaks to him, right? He hears this thundering voice like the, uh, like the mighty ocean waves. And the primary thing that Jesus will do for John is to speak to him. He has a sharp two-edged sword coming from his mouth. Now, we can say, if we want to interpret this book like we talked about last week, like literally as in exactly what John sees is exactly what's going to happen as it is, not figuratively or metaphorically, then you better get ready for Jesus to show up with swords coming out of his mouth. But given that Jesus did not practice sword swallowing, but carpentry, I doubt that he's going to have swords coming out of his mouth, right? The word of God is described as a sharp two-edged sword. What John is saying is, I see a prophet who is going to speak God's word and rule the nations through it. I see a prophet. He is going to unpack the mystery. He is going to be called later the faithful witness. He is the one true prophet. Remember, Moses said, after me, another prophet is coming. Jesus is that prophet. He is going to speak God's word. He is a priest. He is wearing priestly attire. This uh, robe that he is wearing, the long robe with the gold sash across his chest, he's wearing the high priestly robes. So we have a prophet who is wearing priestly robes. He is going to work for God's people. He's going to mediate for God's people before God himself. He's in the midst of the lampstands. That's the temple, right? Only the high priest is able to go into that place. So we have a prophet who is also a priest who's going to walk into that space for us. And yet we also have a king. He has already been called the ruler of all the kings. But he has white hair, eyes of judgment. This is language that we're going to see 
from Daniel for the Ancient of Days, in which God himself shows up as ruler and judge and king. So we have prophet language, priestly language, kingly language. Jesus is our true prophet, priest, and king. He's all three. He functions in that role for us. Now, the other thing that this vision then shows us is this mixing of two visions, as I said, of the Son of Man and of the Ancient of Days. So listen to this from Daniel. Daniel 7, 9, and 10. I watched as thrones were put in place, and the Ancient One, or Ancient of Days, depending on your translation, sat down to judge. His clothing was as white as snow, his hair like purest wool. Does that sound familiar? It's exactly what John sees of the Son of Man. He sat on a fiery throne with wheels of blazing fire, and a river of fire was pouring out, flowing from his presence. Millions of angels ministered to him. Many millions stood to attend him. Then the court began its session, and the books were opened. This is a picture in which Daniel sees into the throne room of heaven and sees God himself sitting on his throne. And again, remember, this is not a literal vision in which he's seeing uh, this is exactly what God is like, right? This is how is Daniel able to understand what God is like? Well, he uses metaphor and picture and vision to showcase that. And again, they are very strong imagery to wake you up. Remember, Daniel is in exile. You know why they're in exile? Because they didn't listen to the prophets. The prophets said, you need to repent and trust in God. Stop trusting in idols. They didn't listen. And so God is giving Daniel visions to showcase how glorious he is to wake you up. If you see a throne with fire coming out of the bottom of it, you should probably open your eyes and wake up. That's kind of the point, is like, hey, wait a second, what's going on here? This is a little bit terrifying. God sits in judgment over the world, the ancient one. Now, this is exactly the language, right, particularly the, the, the depiction of his eyes and his hair, right, is the language that John sees. So he sees the ancient one. All right, so he sees God. So John sees God. Now, here's where it gets a little bit differently. He also describes him as the son of man, which is Jesus's favorite self-title. He uses it all the time. He uses this title, son of man, all the time. Now, in the vision in Daniel 7, the ancient of days comes, and he comes to judge these four beasts that show up. And Daniel explains these are four kingdoms that are going to come, and God's going to judge them. So there's these four separate beasts, and they're wild looking. And in Revelation later, uh, John's going to combine those four beasts into one. And we're going to see that thing. But the Ancient of Days comes to judge these four beasts, representing the kingdoms of the world. And in Daniel's vision, one appears like the Son of Man. As my vision continued that night, I saw someone like the Son of Man. Coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the ancient one and was led into his presence. Okay, so Daniel sees two. Daniel sees the ancient one and then the son of man. John sees one who looks like the ancient one but is called the son of man. 
This is important. We're going to get to the, the combining of these visions. He was given authority, honor, and sovereignty over all the nations of the world so that every race and nation and language would obey him. His rule is eternal. It will never end. His kingdom will never be destroyed. Daniel 10 also has some of this same visionary language that is picked up in Revelation. I looked up and I saw a man dressed in linen clothing with a belt of pure gold around his waist, a priestly robe. His body looked like a precious gem. His face flashed like lightning and his eyes flamed like torches. His arms and his feet shone like polished bronze and his voice roared like a vast multitude of people. Again, in this vision, Daniel sees the same son of man title. This is the same son of man. In Daniel 10 and Daniel 7. Now John is combining those two. So when Jesus takes on the title son of man, what do you think that his disciples are thinking? He takes on this title son of man. Remember that the vision of the son of man is God is coming to judge these kingdoms and establish an everlasting kingdom. Jesus takes on the title Son of Man, and Jesus' first public words in the book of Mark are, the time has promised, promised by God has come at last, he announced. The kingdom of our God is near. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. Okay, if, if Jesus shows up and says, I am the Son of Man, and what God has promised is coming true, and the kingdom is at hand. What do you think the disciples are assuming is going to happen? Destruction of Rome, right? The kingdoms are going to fall. The kingdoms are going to fall, and God's everlasting kingdom is going to be built. God is going to judge the nations, and he's going to establish his rule and reign. What Jesus is declaring there is that the last days are here. The vision of Daniel is coming true. I am the son of man, I am the king of kings, and I will bring about an everlasting kingdom. This is why when, John, uh, when Jesus tells John, write down what you are seeing, both things happening now and things that are to come, the whole book is about the last days. Remember, this is what we argued last week. The whole book is about the time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. That whole period of time is seen as the last days. And so we should not see everything happening here because it's wild, fantastic visions. Oh, well, that has to be something that's happening in the future. No, these are present realities that we are participating in. This book is for us. These are present things. But that's why the disciples thought that Jesus was here to clean house, right? When they're rejected in a place, what did James and John say? Lord, should we call down some fire from heaven and burn them up? They read Daniel, right? They're like, come on, let's do this thing. Let's do this thing. But it's not just the son of man title here in Daniel. This son of man title, it sounds eerily familiar to other promises that God has given. Genesis 3.15, and I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. This is God speaking to Satan, the serpent in the garden. 
There is coming one who will be a son of Eve, son of man, who is going to come and going to crush Satan. A coming one who will crush Satan. A coming one who will obey where Adam disobeyed. I mean, we could go through more of these promises. The one who was promised to Abraham to bring blessing to the nations. What does he say? In Daniel it says, every race, language, and nation will, will follow him. He will rule them all. What do we see here? He is speaking here like the sound of mighty ocean waves. And what Daniel said is it sounds like a multitude of people, the nations. The one who will lead faithfully like Moses, but greater than Moses because he built the house, the people of God. The one who will rule more justly and perfectly than David, whose kingdom will never end. The one who will bring his people back from Babylon in exile. The one who will crush the beasts, the kingdoms of the world. The one who will redeem God's people. This one, this chosen one, this son of man, this ancient of days. What John is describing is one who is fully God and fully man. Who is the prophet priest and king he takes all the attributes of god to himself he takes all the attributes of man to himself he is prophet priest and king all the offices of israel he is the glorious jesus john saw a glimpse of this in jesus's earthly life remember they went up on the mountain peter james and john and jesus transfigures before him, he pulls back a little bit of the veil to show his glory. And you know what he, he tells them on their way back down the mountain? He says, he told them not to tell anyone what he, they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And they were like, okay, that makes no sense. We don't know what he's talking about. So we're just not going to tell anyone because we have no idea what he's saying. Until they saw it. This glorious thing. What does John do in the midst of it? He falls on his face as though dead. Jesus is too glorious. He's too all-consuming. And he falls on his face as though dead. Because he cannot stand before this glorious king of the universe. Our functional views of Jesus fall way short of this. We think often in our lives, if Jesus showed up, we would be like so excited because he's like our buddy. We're going to see how glorious he is in his grace in just a moment. But the first thing we would do is fall on our faces as though dead. He is glorious. He is king of the universe. He is more powerful than all the kings of the world, more powerful than anything we can muster. He is more powerful. That's why John describes him with language like his voice is like mighty ocean waves. Think about something that's so unrelentingly powerful, ocean waves. All the technology in the world can't stop a hurricane. Jesus' voice is louder than a hurricane. 
His voice is louder. He is more glorious. His eyes are like flames of fire. He has righteous and pure judgment. That's what that means. He sees and judges rightly. His feet are like polished bronze. This refers to his moral purity. He stands in moral purity. Like nothing else before you. It is polished. It is beautiful. It is pure. His face is like the brilliance of the sun. But you can't look at it. Try to look at the sun for any length of time, and you can't. You have to look away. You are forced to look away because it hurts your eyes. That's what John's experiencing. You are too glorious. I fall on my face as though dead. And yet, if we put all these visions together, right, and we see this glorious, terrifying image, when Jesus uses the Son of Man phrase, we actually find something utterly shocking. Given all of these visions, given all the glory, given the way John responds, even right now, it's utterly shocking what happens. And maybe John remembers another time in which Jesus shows up like he does here from Mark chapter 10. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came over and spoke to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do us a favor. Never a good start. What is your request, he asked. They replied, when you sit on your glorious throne, which John is seeing now, right? This is the same John. He gets to see the glorious throne later in his life that he asked to sit next to. uh, We want to sit in places of honor next to you, one on your right and the other on your left. But Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering I am about to drink? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism of suffering I must be baptized with? Oh, yes, they replied. We are able. Then Jesus told them, you will indeed drink from my bitter cup and be baptized with the baptism of my suffering. But I have no right to say who will sit on my right and left. God has prepared those places for the ones he has chosen. When the ten other disciples heard what James and John had asked, they were indignant. Now, likely they were indignant, not because they were like, guys, you should not ask that. It's because they got there first. They got to ask it first. How dare you get there before I ask that? So Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers in this world lorded over their people. And officials flaunt their authority over those under them. Just get this for a second. John probably remembers this. And yet, he is seeing this glorious vision. Jesus says, but among you it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. And here's why. And whoever wants to be first among you must be a slave of everyone else. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others. And give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus shows up and every ruler of the world. Think about famous and current rulers of the world. The pomp and circumstance that they show up with. The way in which their entourage shows up. Both in the ancient world and even today. They are ruler. They are king. They get to do what they want. Everyone, no, no one can just walk up to them. You can't get close to the throne. That's not possible. 
and they lord it over others. I have the authority, you don't. I can take advantage of my power, you can't. I have authority over you. Is there anyone in the universe who deserves to say, I have authority over you and I'm not going to serve you? King Jesus. He sits in the place that the Ancient of Days sits. He sits in the very place of God. He knows parts of the universe that we will never discover until glory. And he created them by speaking. He is the glorious God of the universe. He has all authority and honor and power and majesty. How else do you describe that other than saying his face shone like the sun? Fire came out from his throne. He is above all things. And yet, he came not to be served, but to serve. To give his life as a ransom for many. The son of man. The glorious king. The one who rules and reigns. Serve. And that's exactly what happens to John. John falls on his face as though dead. And what happens? When I saw him, I fell at his feet as if I were dead. But he laid his right hand on me and said, Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, but look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and the grave. Same thing happens to Daniel. Just then a hand touched me and lifted me, still trembling, to my hands. Daniel falls to his face as though dead also. Still trembling to my hands and knees. And the man said to me, Daniel, you are very precious to God. So listen carefully to what I have to say to you. Stand up, for I have been sent to you. When he said this to me, I stood up still trembling. Daniel, you are very precious to God. This word can be translated the best thing. A treasure. A treasure of great value. John experiences the exact same thing. Jesus is saying to you, don't be afraid, John. You are very precious to me. Let me show you how precious you are. I, the Son of Man died for you. I, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega, the ancient of days, I, God himself, in the person, the second person of the Trinity, the Son, came, and I went to a cross, and I died. This curse that has plagued the world since the fall, John, I will take it on myself. I will take it on myself. And in doing so, I will die, and yet I will crush it. I will live. I am alive. Look, John. John, do you remember when you saw me in the upper room alive? John, look up. Stand up. I am in glory, resurrected glory. I am alive, and not just now. I will live forever. And I hold the very keys to death and the grave I am sovereign over it all. Friends, this is the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. 
This is the whole point of the book of Revelation. The kingdoms and empires of the world, Babylon, they will fall. Jesus will actually crush them. Will you join the falling, dying kingdom and pledge allegiance to it with your hearts and lives? Or will you join the kingdom of the Lamb? The one true kingdom of the universe. The one that will last forever. The one in which the king himself comes to you and says, come to me. Revelation ends this way. The spirit and the bride say, come. Let anyone who hears this say, come. Let anyone who is thirsty, come. Let anyone who desires drink freely from the water of life. This is the invitation to anyone and everyone. Come and join the bride to this beautiful son of man. Come and join the church. Come and be a part of this people who is ruled by a lamb who was slain. Come and join this son of man who serves, who is not served. He serves by giving his life in your place to pay for your sins so that you could come into the very presence of God. Remember all those things that we talked about when we talked about the tabernacle and the temple in Exodus? The high priest was the only one allowed in because he was, or because the people were sinful. And even the high priest, he first had to sacrifice for himself and then barely come in because he wasn't even worthy. The only way we can enter in is because the high priest has gone in for us and shed his very own blood for you and I so that we can enter in to the very presence of God. This son of man, where is he standing? He's standing in the presence of the lampstands. He's not far off. John is seeing the throne room of God, which is present among the churches. This one who lives, who is alive, he stands in front of the lampstands. He stands here in the midst of the churches. The churches of Ephesus and Smyrna. The church in Ethiopia and Australia. Korea, the Congo, Brazil, Vietnam, Russia, Finland, Canada, America, and yes, you, City Hope. He stands in our presence. He stands present here because you, City Hope, you individually and you collectively are very precious to him. Very precious to him. He holds the keys of death and the grave. He lives now and forevermore. He is the Almighty One. And He says, I love you. I serve. I serve. And now I went to a cross and died, and now I live forever. And now, in light of who I am and what I am doing, you can remain faithful. You can endure and be my ever present witness in the world. You can show the nations. This Jesus, you can serve and suffer for the sake of others to come. You can go and say, come, come drink freely from the water, even when they don't want to, even when they don't like you, even when they persecute you, even when you suffer, even when you don't win in the kingdoms of the world, you can go because your king went there first. So he says to John, don't be afraid. He doesn't say don't be afraid because there's not terrifying things out there. 
There are. There are terrifying things out there. He says, don't be afraid because I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I rule all the nations and I live among you and you are very precious to me. I died, but look, I am alive forever and ever. And you, my bride, my lampstand, my gemstone, my treasure, you are very precious to me. This is the view of Jesus that we need. This is the theoretical view of Jesus of the scriptures for sure. But this is the view of Jesus that we need to match in our everyday life. This view of a sovereign, glorious king of the universe who stands present among us and tells us not to be afraid because he lived and died for us and still lives to bring us home. This is the way we persevere, friends, clinging to this vision of Jesus. So let's do that. Let's pray together. Lord God Almighty, we come to you now and we pray that you would open our eyes to this. God, we pray, this is a present reality. Jesus, that you are the glorious Son of Man. You live forever, embodied in resurrected form to ever plead for us, to live for us, to bring us home safely. Jesus, would you, in the vision that you give us of yourself, would you allow our allegiance to every other kingdom of this world fall away? That we would cling to you and you alone, Jesus. Not just here on Sunday morning, but every single moment of our day. That when we're overwhelmed and terrified, that we would remember that you live and that you hold the keys to death in the grave. When our bodies begin to waste away, that we would remember that you live not just once, but live forever. When our sins accuse us, when Satan accuses us, would we remember that you died and that you will crush him finally under your foot? Jesus, would you remind us of these things, give us a vision of who you are, and transform us all for your glory and honor, we pray in Christ's name.